Now, these next three Sundays leading up to Advent, and by the way, Advent is right on, on our doorsteps, is it not? So these next three Sundays leading up to Advent, we will take a break from the uh, book of Luke, and we will start this morning a short series from the book of Habakkuk entitled Finding Joy in Waiting. And then for the four Sundays in Advent, we'll be doing an Advent, the Advent series, an Advent theme. So this morning we are considering the topic, When God Seems Oblivious to Our Complaints. One of the great complexities of the Christian life is that God often seems oblivious, inattentive, far away, even uncaring during times of hardship, uncertainty, and even tragedy. This morning, we're going to use the personal experience of an Old Testament prophet called Habakkuk, and he will teach us how we might find joy even as we wait for God to break his silence, to act on our behalf, and to come to our aid. As we look at our text we're going to see that it paints a very bleak picture in the life of Habakkuk and his people. Things were hard. Destruction, violence, and injustice were everywhere around him. But God didn't seem to care, at least from his perspective. God didn't seem to care, didn't seem concerned, and didn't even seem as if he wanted to help. I don't know if anybody has ever felt that way. Maybe even recently you've been feeling that way. Let's turn to Habakkuk chapter 1, reading verses 1 through 5. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look on at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and, injust and, sorry, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. So that was Habakkuk's experience. I think he teaches us, first of all, that we can take God on with our complaints. We can take God on with our complaints. Now you ask, Theo, are you saying that I can confront God with my complaints, the complaints that I have against him? I thought I was supposed to always trust God and never question him. And I would say to you, yes, God wants us to trust him always, but it is never wrong to express our honest feelings of hurt and disappointment to God over what he allows or does not allow. Now, that is what Marie Featherson does in her work entitled The Poems of an Anointed Addict. Let me take a few seconds to read through it. She begins, why God, 
Why did this happen? Questions my soul needs to know. If you really love me, why am I hurting so? Why did you let it happen? The power is in your hand. Why did you not stop it? Please help me understand. I know it's for a purpose. I have to figure out what is your reason. Please help me with my doubt. Is there some lesson that I'm supposed to learn? By walking through this faithfully, your favor will I earn? Is it because you want me to know what suffering really means, so I will be more grateful for the joy better days will bring? The Bible says you will never leave me, and you cannot tell a lie. But my heart is hurting so bad. Please, God, tell me why. Now, Habakkuk, the prophet of God, he has a complaint against God. He and his people are in great distress. The ruthless Babylonian army is marching through the streets, wreaking destruction, violence, and death. And God seems, seems oblivious to all of that. Now, I believe that that is instructive for us on two fronts. First of all, life doesn't always make sense even to people of faith. Do you agree with me? Life does not always make sense. Whether God decides to act, how he chooses to act, and when he decides to act doesn't always make sense to us. Secondly, when we have complaints against God, we can always take God on. Now, I don't mean that we get angry and shake our fists at God and take him on as in a wrestling match, because whenever you do that, you always lose. You never do that against God and win. But we don't have to walk away angry and upset at God. We can engage God with our questions, with our debates, and with our prayers. And so Habakkuk takes God on with his complaints. He has, he has two questions for God, which are the very questions that we ourselves ask of God when we want or when we experience times of hardship and personal or national crisis. The first question that he asks God is the duration question. God, how long? Now, what he really means by this question is, okay, God, isn't, isn't it enough already? Hasn't this gone on long enough? Isn't it time you put a stop to this? So that was his first question. The second question is the reason question. Why? God, why? In other, in other words, God, what possible reason could you have for allowing this in my life, in our lives as a nation? Why me? Why us? Why not somebody else? Why now? The why question. So Habakkuk takes God on with his complaints. He brings to God the complaint that he has against God. He doesn't walk away from God in anger. He doesn't, doesn't bottle up his anger inside him. He takes God on. He's disappointed and angry with God for allowing a foreign army to invade his country. And he lets God know about it. That is never wrong. That is never wrong at all, to take God on. Again, not to shake your fist in his face, not to challenge him, 
to a fight because you can never win when you do that, but to engage him. He longs for us to do that. Now, I'm calling the first of his three complaints, because he does have three complaints. I'm calling the first one, you are an unhearing God. He says, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear, or cry to you violence and you will not save? In other words, God, you have allowed our country to be invaded by violence, bloodshed, death, and hardship. And I have been doing what every prophet and every Christian ought to do when disaster strikes them or their city. I have been crying out to you for help. And I would think, God, that you would would respond to me because I am a prophet of God. I am serving you. And I'm crying out to you on behalf of my people. But my cries are met with your deafening silence. Not a peep out of you, Lord. How long must I cry to you to save our city and our nation while you remain unhearing and unresponsive? One of the the most significant challenges to your faith in God is when he does not hear you. Anybody been there? You want God to hear you, and he does not seem to be hearing you. Your cries go unanswered. Your prayers bounce off the ceiling and come right back at you unanswered. Not even a whisper from God. Your tears drench your pillow at night, and still God remains silent. What do you do in times like those? Will you still address him as Oh, Lord? But I thought Lord means that he's in charge. And if he's in charge, shouldn't he be able to deal with these situations that I'm crying out to him for? Shouldn't he be able to speak into our circumstances and give us hope that he will change things? Will you still call him Lord when it seems that he's anything but Lord of the things that you've been crying out to him about? For days, maybe weeks, months, even years? Oh Lord, how long? How long must I cry and you will not hear? How long must I cry, God, please intervene in this national crisis and you will not hear? How long must I cry, God, please do not let my enemies triumph over me and you will not hear? How long must I cry, God, Please remove this thorn that is in my flesh, and you will not hear. How long must I cry, God, please take this cup of suffering from me, and you still will not hear. How long must I cry, God, please remove this disease from my body. It has been with me. I carry it around for years, and yet you will not hear. Now, Scripture does not shy away from these how long questions. Maybe you have some how long questions of your own as well. Take God on with them. Take God on. Again, not in a fist fight, not with your fist in his face challenging him because you will always lose, but take him on with your debates, your questions, and your prayers. Now I'm calling the second complaint You are an unhearing God. 
This is what Habakkuk asked. Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look on at wrong? Now, can you picture God sitting up in heaven idly, twiddling his thumbs with his feet up, watching a movie? Can you, can you picture God that way? And that is how um, Habakkuk seems to picture him, fast asleep while his people are experiencing violence, bloodshed, death, and even destruction. And even when he cries, oh Lord, please help, God seems to do nothing to save them. That is a picture that Habakkuk paints of God. He does not seem to care. Even, I mean, I'm sorry, if he did, then he would do something, anything, to relieve the suffering of his, that his people are going through because there is a foreign army that is marching through their land, leaving violence, death, and destruction. And instead, God seems to be idly sitting by with his feet up and couldn't care less. Now that is another great test of our faith. When God does not seem to care. Now over and over in scripture and in history, people have asked and are still asking, Lord, don't you care? Don't you care that my brother has just died? Mary asked of Jesus. Don't you care that my only child is sick? Don't you care that we are about to perish in this storm? Don't you care that the wicked prosper while the innocent suffer? Don't you care that injustice roams our streets and our courts? And maybe, maybe there are some don't you, care, don't you care questions that you have for God as well. Don't you care that my marriage is falling apart? Don't you care that my bills are due and I don't have the money to pay for them? Don't you care that my health is failing? Don't you care that I'm at the end of my rope? God can answer those questions himself. But he wants me to tell you, yes, he does. He wants me to tell you that just because it seems so doesn't mean that it is so. See, later on, Habakkuk, he will discover the secret of why all of this is happening in his country. God will let him know that he was not idly sitting by at all. Instead, he was fully aware of what his people were going through. He was only using a foreign army to discipline them for being unfaithful to him. Imagine that, God using an enemy nation, a pagan nation, to discipline his own people for their disobedience, hoping that they would repent and return to him. You see, sometimes the right question is not how long or even why. Sometimes the right question is, Lord, what are you teaching me in this? What lesson do you want me to learn in this? Now listen to God's words to his people then and to us now. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 9 through 14. When we seek to um, accuse God of being uncaring, look at his response. God says to us, but the Lord's portion 
is his people. In other words, my people are on my heart. How can you accuse me of being uncaring? The Lord's portion is his people. Jacob, his allotted heritage. He found him in a desert land and in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. The Lord alone guided you. No foreign god was with him. He made him ride on the high places of the land, and he ate the produce of the field, and he suckled him with honey out of the, out of the rock, and oil out of the flinty rock curds from the herd, and milk from the flock, with fat of lambs, rams of Bashan, and goats, with the very finest of the wheat. And you drank foaming wine made from the blood of the grape. Now what more tender language can you find anywhere in Scripture speaking to the tender care that God showed his people when they sought him as their God? He would encircle them, care for them, protect them, spread his wings over them, uphold them, guide them, elevate them, feed them with honey from the rock, milk from the flock, and the finest of the wheat. And if that were not enough, with the purest of grapes. That speaks to the care that God has for his people. How can we accuse him of being uncaring? But as is so often the case, they soon became unfaithful and they forgot God. You see, that is, that, is, that is one of the human complexities. That when we are in trouble and in need and we're desperate, we reach for God. We seek for him with all of our hearts. We want to hear from him and then God shows up. And God provides and cares and does all of that. But let, let's listen to the words that God spoke later, just a few verses later in the chapter. I believe these verses applied to them then. It applies to us now. God says, But they grew fat and kicked. They grew fat, stout and sleek. Then they forsook God who made them, and scoffed at the rock of their salvation. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods, with abominations. They provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods that they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom their fathers had never dreaded. They were unmindful of the rock that bore them, and they forgot the God who gave them birth. That is so often the case with me, with us as well. We think that God is uncaring. He shows us that he's not. And when he does show us and we become fat and flourishing and sleek, these are the words that it uses. They grew fat and stout and sleek. And then they began to scoff at God and reject him and be unmindful of him. I want to say to us this morning that God's silence does not mean that he is uncaring. 
God's silence does not mean that he's uncaring. God remained silent while the Babylonian army was being used of him to discipline his people for as long as it would take for them to regain the full, for him to regain their full attention and their complete devotion. So sometimes God has a way of being silent and in his silence disciplining us to get our full attention and our full devotion. This is what the psalmist David said. He said something that was true of him and true of us when it comes to God's disciplining of us. He said in Psalm 119 and, verses, and verse 67, he says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. When God's discipline is not intact, we do all kinds of things that lead us astray. But after his discipline, after we learn that lesson, we keep his word. I'm calling Habakkuk's third and final complaint, you are an unbending God. In other words, you won't make it stop. You are unbending. Habakkuk says, destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. The law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. The wicked surround the righteous and justice goes forth perverted. And so the more that Habakkuk cried out to God, God, please make it stop, make it stop, enough already, make it stop. The more he did that, the more Eve, that evil and destruction and violence and injustice continued. The more he cried out, God, stop it, please. The more it continued. But here's what I've discovered. Just because God won't doesn't mean that he can't. I'm so glad about that. Just because God won't, maybe at that time that you're crying and ask him to, doesn't mean that he can't. And if God can but won't, there must be a lesson in our pain that he wants us to learn. If God can do it but he won't, there must be a lesson that he wants us to learn. And so Habakkuk learned that lesson. He discovered that there was a purpose in God's silence. He learned that God was neither unhearing nor uncaring. God was not idly sitting by with his feet up while his people suffered. He was disciplining them so that they might, he might gain their full attention and their full devotion. God says this. Well, he says this, Habakkuk does, in, um, later during the chapter, chapter 1. He comes back to God and he says, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. In other words, you're silent, you're not doing anything to stop it, but I've discovered that this is not to our death. You have ordained them, the enemy nation that is in our country right now, you have ordained them as a judgment. You're disciplining us. That's what he learned. And you, O rock, have established them for reproof. You are of purer eyes than to see evil. I love that. And you cannot look at wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man, the man more righteous than he? So if God can but won't, then 
it must be that he's trying to teach us something. And if God won't stop it when we ask him to, here's what we must also learn, that we can trust, we can trust God's grace. Because he says, as he said to the Apostle Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. And my power is made perfect in your weakness. In other words, what God is after is for you to throw yourself upon him in trust and in abandon. Trusting him. Trusting him even when he doesn't change the circumstances that you're crying out for. The bottom line of our message this morning is that God is never oblivious to what you and I are going through. Never oblivious. Never. There are a few things I'd like you to take away from this message this morning. First of which is this. Come and reason with God about your sin. I believe that one of the greatest invitations that ever was given was the one that God gave to people who had turned away from him and had become caught in a cycle of sin. He said to them, come now, let us reason together. In other words, come take me on. Come take me on with your complaint. Let us reason together. Let us hash things out. Let me hear you speak, and then you let me speak to you. Let us reason together. Let us have a conversation together, you and me, about what you've done. Your sins may have been as scarlet, but I will make them as white as snow. They may be red like crimson, but I will make them like wool. That is, a, that is the greatest invitation ever given, I believe. Because it says to me that God is more willing to forgive my sin than I am of coming to him. But yet he says, come and let's talk things over. Let us reason together. I don't care what you did yesterday or last week. Just reason with me and see if I won't forgive your sin and make it as white as snow. I wonder if there's anyone present this morning who wants to come to Jesus with your eyes closed and your heads bowed. Is there a sense in your heart this morning that God is inviting you to come and reason to him so he may forgive you of your sin, release you from your guilt, and make you as white as snow? If that is you, may I see your hand? Father, I thank you. I thank you this morning for your grace. God, we have been singing about the goodness of God. Nowhere do we see our goodness displayed more than in the forgiveness of guilty people. God, I thank you for forgiving my sin, our sins. If there's one person here this morning who does not have the peace in their heart that they have been forgiven, I pray that in these few moments that we're praying together, that they will indeed give their sin to you and receive your forgiveness and your peace. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.
Secondly, I want to challenge you to take God on with your complaints. Take God on with your complaints. Bring to God any complaint that you have against him. Be honest with God. Tell him that you're angry. Tell him that you're disappointed. Tell him that you feel that he's unhearing and uncaring and unbending. Tell him you can't understand why he's silent, why he hasn't lifted a finger to stop the pain or what it is that you're going through. Tell him. Unload on him. Do all of that. But then I challenge you to sit in silence and let him show you what his silence is for. See, God wants us to vent on him, to unload on him, to complain to him. But then he also wants us to sit in silence and to hear why he has been silent for so long. Finally, I want to challenge you to trust fully in God's grace. Maybe your cries have been met with silence. Maybe you have been crying out to God for a while to fix your marriage, to heal your body, to save your children, to revive your church, to turn things around. Maybe you've been crying out for God to do all of these things and nothing has changed, nothing. Your circumstances have not changed at all. Can you still call him Lord, although he hasn't shown himself to be Lord in these circumstances? Trust in God's grace. It is sufficient for you. His power is made perfect in your weakness. That is why the Apostle Paul says, I will glory more in the weaknesses that I have because when I do that, the power of Christ is manifested in me. So let us all trust in the unfailing grace of God. Let us pray together. Father, we know you to be an, an amazing God. And yet you are mysterious. We cannot fathom you. We can't figure you out. We sometimes can't trace you. We can't feel you. We can't hear you sometimes. And yet, Lord, our faith in you is still strong. And even if our faith is struggling, Lord, thank you that we still have faith. And we ask, oh Lord, that whatever our situations, that, Lord, you would show yourself to be Lord of them. And God, teach us how to wait in the silence. Teach us how to still be people of faith when you don't turn things around for us immediately, when you seem far away. Even in the night seasons when we can't sleep because things are perplexing and it seems you're not hearing Help us still to trust you, to be people of faith. Because, Lord, we are your portion. You delight in us, and you care for us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.